Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Marco Trizzino from Thomas Jefferson University on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to audience. You got your PhD from Sapienza University in Rome in 2011. Then you took a detour and left academia from 2012 to 2014 and were assistant project manager at Institutio Oikos. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. Then you moved on to do a second postdoc at the Whitstar Institute in Philadelphia from 2016 to 2019. And since 2019, you are assistant professor at the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Um, yes, absolutely. I think Ever since I was very little, I was, uh, I guess, captured by, by evolution in particular. I remember going to the National, you know, National History Museum in Milan and seeing all of these animals and dinosaurs. And then there was a cartoon screen in Italy that was used to be called, uh, so I'm trying to translate the history of the, uh, of, you know, of the human species, basically, there was technically the history of the of the of the planet earth and then you know when the human species showed up and and all of the evolution of humans and you know i was about seven or eight year old and i remember then uh you know being you know reading about evolution ever since reading about you know darwin darwin books uh when i was in you know eight ninth grade basically and you know and then i was pretty sure i was gonna go you know for a career in science at that point Yeah, so sorry to interrupt, but uh, when looking at your CV, you had like after your um, PhD, you had a, a position at, as project manager first, and then you went back to, to academia. Was this like planned? Did you want to try something else, or is this like, yeah, um, how did that happen? I, mean, I, wa um, I would say no, um, it was not something I necessarily was looking for, but what basically happened is that I finished my PhD. And at the same time, my, my wife, so we, we were in Rome for my PhD, and she found, we are originally from the Milan area, so in the north. Uh, and so she found a permanent job in, you know, near Milan, in Milan. And so I started looking for opportunities there, like basically postdoc opportunities, but uh, in Italy, postdocs are very rare. You know, there isn't that much funding for research, unfortunately. And so... You know, for the time being, I couldn't really, you know, find anything in academia, but there was this really nice opportunity to work with this uh, NGO that would, you know, write projects uh, focused on, you know, uh, environmental uh, planning and, you know, uh, in Italy and Africa as well. So a lot of, you know, projects about, you know, ecology, uh, you know, population ecology and, and, You know, they were all biologists, most of them, uh, zoologists, you know, really planning about fauna. Uh, and it was really cool opportunity. I did a lot of field, field work, in, mostly in Italy, in that case. I didn't have the chance to go to Africa, unfortunately. I would have loved it. But, 
it was really a nice experience. And technically speaking, this NGO would actually have a branch. It was basically a spin-off of a university lab. So in some ways, it was still, you know, academia, just even if formally it wasn't. But I was working with researchers, with, with scientists. Right? Okay. So coming to your science that centers around transposable elements in evolution and the effect of mutations in chromatin-associated proteins on human evolution and also longevity. Um, I want to start in the year 2017. There you were first author on a paper titled Transposable Elements are the primary source of novelty in primate gene regulation. Um, before we dive into the paper, could you maybe give a brief introduction to transposable elements? Uh, what are they and where do they come from? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, so transposable elements are uh, also called mobile DNA, right? So they are mobile DNA elements um, that uh, colonize the eukaryotic genomes as parasites, literally. Something similar to what viruses do, and actually most, some of them are actually derived from viral infections, right? And so, uh, of course, there are species-specific transposons, and then there are transposons that are shared across species. And, you know, Barbara McClintock first discovered them many, many decades ago, and, you know, while studying maize uh, form, basically. And, and then she got a Nobel Prize for it, although, you know, what she was suggesting at the beginning, that this transposing may actually have a function as, you know, some sort of a regulatory function within the genome, you know, there was a little bit of skepticism. And, it, you know, of course, when she suggested this, it was, you know, we didn't have the means to explore this properly, right? But then when next generation sequencing and, and the sequencing of genomes, you know, came up handed uh, in the last couple of decades, you know, it was pretty clear that these transposons are not just parasites, they just take advantage of the genomes to, you know, to move and reproduce generation after generation and propagate. But they actually are, you know, started, you know, not all of them, of course, but a good chunk of them, uh, becomes really uh, part of a mutualistic relationship between the host, which is the genome, and the parasite, which is the transposon, and the, the genome really leverages them to perform functions that sheds, for example, what we started the lab, which is you know, performing G-regulatory functions. So they become active enhancers, active promoters to regulate the expression of genes of the host genome. And so like, uh, you know, the Cedric Feshtat was, you know, the leader in the field, really. Like he always says, you know, sometimes the genome becomes addicted to transposons because they, they, you know, they perform activities that are very important, very important to them. And, and this, you know, fascinated me because it, it, it's, of course, evolutionary biology, but it's applied to, you know, at the end of the day, to physiology, to, 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 to genome function, to organism biology. Uh, can you talk about the study? Which methods did you use and what was the main takeaway then? Yes, absolutely. So, yes, uh, you know, going back to your very first question, you know, I was working with this NGO in Italy, but, you know, I, I was really missing, you know, doing, you know, actual, you know, uh, research, you know. Uh, and so I started to look, you know, when I realized that really doing a postdoc in Italy was, you know, Hard to find, first of all, and then also, you know, the long-term perspectives were a little bit uncertain because of the lack of funding that Italy and most of Europe had. Uh, I decided to look abroad, and you know, there was this uh, professor at the UPenn in the Department of Genetics, 
uh, Christopher Brown, although it was by Katie. And, and so Katie was, you know, uh, in the department, he's still in the department of genetics, was looking for postdocs. He, he had started his lab a couple of years earlier. And, and you know, I emailed him with, the, you know, a so-called, you know, cold email saying, oh, my name is Marco. I, you know, I'm interested in A, B, and C. And I know you're looking for postdocs. Uh, you know, would you consider, you know, talking to me on Skype? You know, Zoom was not a thing back in the day uh, on Skype. And he said, yes. So we started the conversation and he said, you know, what would you like to work on? And I expressed my interest in evolution and in genomics. And they really wanted to, since, you know, next generation sequencing was blooming in the U.S. Uh, at, you know, 2014, uh, I really wanted to get into that field and learn how to uh, work with this big data, right? All of the computational approaches and everything. And so, you know, we started thinking about projects and he said, how about we study, you know, the evolution of gene regulation in primates. And, and so we started to put together a design, uh, including all, you know, primate species from all the, the main, main lineages of primates. Um, and we were able to obtain liver tissue. And, you know, the liver is a great tissue because, you know, it has a core function, which is, of course, conserved across mammals, right? So, you know. The, the liver has it's a clear defined function, but also the liver has to adapt to diets of you know the, the different primate species have. So it's it's really great to study evolution and, and adaptation. And so the idea was to get liver tissue out of all of those species and and uh, perform uh, chip seek, so chromatin immunoprecipitation followed by sequencing for specific uh, uh, modification of histone tail, so histone modifications, that normally mark active uh, cis regulatory app. So active enhancers and active promoters. So these are elements that regulate, the, this is non-coding DNA that has the function to regulate the expression of the nearby gene. So what we wanted to understand is, if you take a human enhancer or a human promoter, what are the odds that these promoters have conserved function across all primates, or what are the odds that these are species-specific activities? or you know, lineage-specific activities. So in answer, they're only shared between you know, gray dates or only between lemurs uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so you know, we started with this, and then we also used RNA-seq to, to quantify gene expression to see if you had a conserved gene, sorry, a conserving answer, would the expression of the near gene also conserve across species? And so we found, and then there was a lot of computation on, uh, analysis that I, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So I learned a lot. Uh, my PI and other club members were very helpful. And and what we found was that uh, the majority of of human uh, liver enhancers and promoters are conserved across all primates. However, there is a you know, small fraction that is either linear specific or species specific. And when we look at these species specific enhancers and promoters, and we look at what they are genomically. They are transposable elements that were co-opted by the genome to become enhancers, right? And most of these transposons were specifically this group of transposons called SVA, uh, which is a, a young lineage of transposable elements that is uh, only found in humans and, and other apes, and most of them are actually specific of the human. So imagine having these parasites that are specific of the human that were co-opted by the genome to function as enhancers. And that's what we basically found. And then we collaborated with uh, another group at the University of Chicago, uh, led by Vincent Lynch, 
to basically do some you know functional validation of these transposons, showing that they could uh, you know also in vitro work as as in answers. And and then we put everything together and we published mm-hmm. the paper, which is actually up to date my most cited paper uh, as of now. And you know, I'm really proud of that work. And uh, this was a collaboration with many. Uh, you know, there is a cover daughter, Yoson Park. It was postdoc in the lab with me. She's now a Pfizer, so she 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 was very important uh, you know, for the paper as well. So um, during the research for this interview, I also found a paper on BioArchive that that was only posted like a couple of weeks ago. So we are recording this now in the beginning of August, and this was posted there in July. Um, there you took uh, you looked at transposable elements in hippocampal intermediate progenitors and how they re- rewire gene regulatory networks there. So what did you find there, and what was the, the impact of those transposable elements um, yeah, on the brain, basically? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, this was posted two weeks ago, but uh, to be precise, it's a, um, a basically updated version of the preprint. The preprint was first posted, I think, uh, later last year. Then we submitted to the journal, it went under review. So we updated it with the reviewer, you know, we, we addressed the reviewer comments, we updated it and we reposted it. So we're hoping that it will actually be published in, in the next couple of months. But so this was basically a, a, the follow-up of that original paper that we just discussed, right? So uh, we found this, you know, remember I just said this SVA transposons to be important for the human gene regulation. And as I told you, many of these SVAs are human-specific. So actually, still, when I was a postdoc, I did a follow-up study that was then published on BMC Genomics, where we decided to look, okay, we know that these SVAs are important in the liver, but what if we look at all of the human tissues, right? So we, we, all of the human cell types and tissues, what are the odds that an SVA is an active answer outside the liver, right? And so thank you know, thankfully, there are now so many consortia that generate uh, public data that you can then leverage, you know, and, and reanalyze yourself. So we took advantage, in, in this case, of Roadmap, which is a consortium that profiled active uh, and repressed enhancers and promoters across pretty much all human cell types. So we took all of this data and we looked, you know, set type by set type, uh, if there were tissue in which you have and higher than expected number of enhancers that would overlap this SBA transponder. And we found a bunch of them. But what's the, what was the most uh, interesting finding to me was that if you look at the brain, okay, the consortium, the roadmap consortium, had analyzed uh, five different brain tissues. And out of these five, four displayed literally zero, zero evidence of SBA-derived enhancers. Suggested that this SBA transponder tend to be mostly repressed in most of the brain. But then when you look at the hippocampus, the situation was much different, with approximately 5% of all of the active answers coming from an SVA transposon. And 5% might not seem a lot to you, but it's important to say that SVA transposons account for 0.3% of all of the genome. So 5% is an order of magnitude more than expected, so it's a lot. And so when I started my lab a few years ago, I wanted to follow this up and you know understand why these SVA transposons are so so much frequently co-opted in, in the human hippocampus as, as human enhancers, unlike you know pretty much many other tissues. And so we started by looking at the sequence of these SVAs and we found a enrichment for a binding motif of a transcription factor called TBR2, also known as EOMIS, 
which is, you know, distribution factor has many functions, but in the hippocampus, it's very important during development because it regulates a, a specific developmental time point of, of hippocampal development called intermediate progenitors. So what are these? So when you have a neural stem cell and you need to make, you know, a, a differentiate an interneuron during neurogenesis, you first go through a step of progenitors whose role is to proliferate and divide so that at the end of the day, you have as many neurons as possible, right? And so intermediate progenitors have this function, right, to, to, to proliferate a lot and give origin to many, many hippocampal neurons in this case. And TBR2 regulates specifically this stage. It's only activated during, you know, intermediate progenitors, uh, differentiation and proliferation, and then it gets inactivated soon after. So with that, what if SBAs have contributed to the, you know, G-regulatory networks important for this very important uh, progenitor population? Uh, and we specifically focus on human-specific SBAs to see if, you know, human hippocampal development might be really rewired by these transposons, making, a, you know, this, this progenitor different than, you know, the chimpanzee, from the chimpanzee ones. And so we were lucky enough. So we, in my lab, we, we uh, for all, pretty much all the projects, we use a, a specific system called induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPSC. Uh, so these cells are, um, were discovered by Yamanaka and collaborators in 2006. The way they work is that they found basically that you can take any somatic cell from any, an organism, such as a, you know, a skin fibroblast, for example. You can treat this somatic cells with uh, a cocktail of transcription factors, also known as pluripotency factors or Yamanaka factors from the name of the person, the scientist who discovered them. And within you know, weeks or a couple of months, your fibroblasts will be completely reprogrammed, going back to a you know, stem cell-like uh, you know, status. And, and so that's why they're called induced pluripotent stem cells. And then nowadays, there are many, many different protocols to differentiate in, in the lab your IPSCs into pretty much anything you want. You can make a neuroquest cells, you can make a melanocyte, you can make a, uh, a neuron of any kind, you can make neuron progenitors, you can make a hepatocyte. And so for this project, we set up a protocol to differentiate human and chimpanzee IPSCs from, uh, uh, that we got from Yoav Gilad in this case. So Yoav Gilad is the scientist at the University of Chicago, he's a professor there. It's one of the leaders in the fields of, you know, of primary gene regulation evolution. He provided us with matched human and chimpanzee lines. We differentiated them into intermediate progenitors with a protocol that takes about a week. And, and then we performed a, a bunch of genomic assays to see what genes are differentially expressed between the, you know, the two species, what enhancers are differentially active between the two species. And are these differentially active enhancers derived from SVA transposons? And do these SVA transposon derived enhancers contribute to the difference in gene expression? And basically, the, and, uh, we, we found that that was exactly the case. We found that there are a bunch of uh, enhancers that are derived from human specific SVA transposons that are bound by this TBR2 transcription factor. And these elements, transposon derived elements, activate the nearby genes in a different way than, you know, than these genes are activated in the chimpanzee, providing really a completely different transcriptome between the two species. Uh, and what we also demonstrated using CRISPR 
uh, we use CRISPR to repress pretty much all of the human, uh, uh, all of the human specific SVAs. And we found that when you do that, these genes that are differentially expressed between human and chimpanzee, you know, go back to chimpanzee level of expression. Suggested, you know, we also basically validated this, right? We, we, we demonstrated that this human specific transposon really completely reorganized uh, the gene regulatory network in a very, very important progenitor population. And I hope I explained that clearly. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really due to those um, transposable elements that the brain got more complex compared to the chimpanzees? I mean, I would say it's not just because of that, but it, 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 they contributed. For sure, they had an important role. Uh, of course, you know, there are many, many other factors, so I, I don't want to oversimplify. But we really think that they had a very important role. Yeah, okay. So my my current my perception of the current work that is done on enhancers was that the work has mostly focused on the genomics of enhancers and which enhancers intact with which promoters and how like the 3D organization is 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 uh, achieved on like a, a DNA basis I would to simplify it but you did some some interesting work which is um pretty different than that uh, because the question question is which factors would mediate such an interaction right how what what kind of proteins are are um, associated to the enhancers and the promoters and would interact uh, yeah, mediate the interaction so you did it exactly that so um, which protein did you look at and what did you find about this function regarding enhancers yes yes thank you so i i think you're referring to uh you know my second you know i did a second postdoc of course and and we started this integrator uh are you referring about that right yeah Okay, so yes, um, so uh, right after I finished my first postdoc with Katie Upan, uh, I felt like I was not you know, ready yet to, to go to job market, so I looked for a second postdoc and I wanted to stay you know, in the Upan. So I found a position in Alessandro Gardini's lab uh, at the Witson Institute, which is a cancer center within Upan campus, and specifically in the gene expression regulation program of the, of the center. And it was really interesting, like you say, in, in how this, you know, I studied the genomics of the answers in my first postdoc, and we still do it here uh, in my lab. But in the, in the second postdoc, Alessandro is interested in how do enhancers get activated? Like, how do enhancers get selected, especially during self-fate determination, right? So when you, when you have a stem cell and you need to make, you know, a terminal you know, cell line, uh, as you know, you have a, you know, a series of linear-specific enhancers that need to be turned on to then turn on the genes. And the question is, who is telling these enhancers how to, you know, to get turned on, and who is telling these enhancers what genes they should target? And so we were studying this protein complex called Integrator, which is made of 14 different subunits. It's a chromatin-associated you know, protein complex that was discovered, you know, not, you know, approximately. 10 years before it started my case, you know, I put stuff in Alexander's lab. And, and still, you know, we, you know, there are a couple of different main functions associated to this complex, one of which is to regulate RNA pol 2 dynamics during transcription. And the other one is to, you know, was Alexander in his nature paper demonstrated that uh, integrator also is important for the transcription of enhanced derived RNAs. But you know, what we really didn't know was if you take, you know, if there are 14 subunits, so What are the functions of the single subunit? And so we we made a screening. Uh, Alessandro, as a system, was interested in studying hematopoietic differentiation. 
So from an immunotopoietic center, how do you make a myeloid cell? Right? So how do you make a monocyte or a granulocyte? And, and so in collaboration with another postdoc in the lab, Elisa Barbieri, uh, we were really trying to understand uh, what subunits of this integrator complex, if you deplete them, you know, they have an effect on cell differentiation. And we found that one of those that was uh, subunit 13 of integrator had the most dramatic effect. You know, when you would deplete it, it would have a strong, you know, effect on, on the ability of stem cells to make uh, the monocytes, so to make colonies. And so uh, what uh, we did was, you know, to try and understand through chip sequencing, this integrator 13, where would it find during the differentiation of the cells? And, and we demonstrated it would target these enhancers that are important to uh, uh, specify the, the, the myeloid fate. And if you depleted it, uh, and the enhancer would not get activated, and the enhancer would not be able to, to you know, talk to the nearby gene to activate expression. And so we published that paper in uh, Molecular Cell, and, and yeah. And then we also worked on a second protein complex, which is something we are still interested in my lab right now, which is the path complex, also known as you know, white knee for switch knee, that is instead a, you know, a complex important from, for protein remodeling. And in my lab, what we really like to study uh, are, you know, there's another complex made of many different subunits, and what we like to study is, uh, the mutations that are uh, recurrent in genes and for subunits are normally associated with both cancer and neurodevelopmental disorders. We like to study the neurodevelopmental end of it. And, and, and that's something that we're pursuing here, still using IPFCs. We use patient-derived IPFCs and, and, and we differentiate them into neurons or neurons cells because we also like to be beneficial for that. But you know, maybe you were going to ask about that, so I don't want to spoil <laughs> What I wanted to ask, like the, the last question about your your uh, past work, is um, that you looked at enhanced evolution in great apes and how this is connected to the lifespan of those, um, yeah, different different apes. And yeah, that that was like the, the last question. What did you find yeah. there? How is that connected? Yes, absolutely. So um, this is the work of one of my postdocs. So first of all, the work on SVA and and, and intermediate progenitors was the work of Shruti Paturi, which is one of my postdocs. And now the work you're referring to is from another postdoc. Um, uh, Tejada Martinez is the first author. Daniela, Daniela Tejada Martinez. And also um, my PhD student, Samantha Barnada, she contributed to the SVA project as well. So I want to acknowledge all of these uh, great lab members I have. And I have another postdoc, Chiara, who's working on the role of transposon in Alzheimer. We haven't published this data yet, but you know, there is great, you know, she has great findings, so we expect another great, you know, great paper coming up. But yeah, Daniela, Daniela's work. So Daniela, when Dani uh, joined my lab, so she's been interested in evolution of aging forever. She's, you know, she's done a PhD on it. And, and you know, she started in Chile and, and Liverpool working with, you know, great people in the field. And then she joined my lab as a postdoc and so I wanted to keep working on it. And 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 so we so she basically reanalyzed, we started by reanalyzing the data that I generated as a postdoc. And 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 you know she focused on this primate species. She looked at you know their whole genome sequencing, she looked for you know positive selection, 
you know, the classic studies you find, you know, look for genes under fuzzy selection, looks for genes whose uh, uh, rate of evolution was correlated with lifespan. And so she found, a, a, you know, several of them, you know, several genes that in primates, and specifically in great apes, because the underlying question was, why do great apes live longer than the other primates? So why a human or a chimpanzee live longer than a macaque or longer, longer than a lemur? And why are we also bigger? And so she found genes whose rate of evolution is correlated, you know, Basically, they, they evolve more quickly in apes, and these are genes important for aging, for cancer resistance. So she found a lot of these genes. And, and then she found genes that deposit selection as well in the great apes that also are associated with aging, and there was also great finding. But then we asked, you know, these are great finding on, on the coding side of the genome, but, you know, only 2% of the human genome is coded. So since we have the data, do we find something in, in, in the non-coding genome of great apes that could also explain you know, why apes live longer, right? So we look at these enhancers and promoters uh, that I have characterized as a postdoc, and we started to see uh, you know, how many of these enhancers are found near genes that are differentially spread between apes and the other primates. And we found many of them. We find that First of all, 8% of the genes uh, that are different, you know, that are active in, in apes are differentially expressed compared to the other primates. And many of these genes are, you know, as functions that could be associated with aging. And then we look how many of these genes that are differentially expressed between apes and the others are near, and that, and that are important for aging, are near a ape-specific enhancer. And we found that some 20% of them, right? So a huge chunk of, of, of the genes that are differentially expressed between apes and the other and the other primates, and that are also uh, associated with aging. So these are genes that are important for aging, for cancer resistance, for senescence, that are uh, preferentially upregulated in humans compared to the, to the other primates, are found near in answers that are also, sorry, go back. Genes that are important for aging, senescence, and cancer resistance that are differentially spread between apes and other primates, or not humans, apes and other primates, are found near ape-specific enhancers. So imagine that you, you have new enhancers you know, evolving. These enhancers you know, change the expression of the near gene. These genes are important for aging. So this provided you know, a pool to, to the apes to fight aging, basically, and live longer. And, and, and the final question was, what are these ape-specific enhancers that are important for aging? And once again, when we look at the sequence, we found our beloved transportable elements. Suggesting that even in this case, transportable contributed to the evolution of the enhancers that altered the expression of genes important for aging in apes and, and demonstrating that these ape specific uh, genes uh, uh, regulated by ape specific enhancers could, you know, could have contributed to make us live longer. And we published that on molecular biology and evolution uh, earlier this year. So you already talked about the work that is coming out in the near future. So the question is, what are you working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Yes. So uh, uh, first of all, my laboratory is moving. Uh, so this should probably mention. And we're moving to, you know, we're now we're at Jefferson, Philadelphia, but we're moving to, to Imperial College London uh, as of September. So there would be, you know, a lot of changes, um, but uh, nonetheless, you know, our areas of interest will be the same. 
And so we have pretty much three main uh, things we are exploring right now. One is, uh, I mentioned before, uh, chromatin remodeling complexes, the buff complex. We are really interested in, in mutations associated, uh, you know, mutations in the subunits of the genes that encode for the subunits of this chromatin remodeling complex, and specifically the ones that are associated with neurodevelopmental disorders. There are a couple of these subunits, namely Eritone and Eritone B, whose mutations is found in uh, autism spectrum disorders, a lot of craniofacial development syndromes, neurodevelopmental syndromes. And, and, and we already published a paper uh, using a patient-derived IQCs that demonstrated a role for, you know, one of these subunits, said it won't be in, in, in neurocrest differentiation. And now we are using ERIT1A patient-derived cells to look also at the same, at the same you know, group of syndromes and the same group of phenotypes. And this is what my PhD student is doing. Then. Uh, and then the rest of it is all transposons. So uh, I mentioned Alzheimer's disease before. So there is evidence that uh, neurodegeneration uh, and, and transposable elements are associated with each other because not just in Alzheimer's, but also in ALS and in many other uh, neurodegenerative disorders, uh, transposable elements that, you know, I told you before, they can be co-opted by the genome to perform functions, but we, we shouldn't forget that most of them are parasites. So the genome normally represses them through DNA methylation, histometylation, uh, small RNA pathways. Um, but sometimes this repression is lost. And this happens normally during aging in general. So when you get old, some of your transposons will start, you know, going around, uh, even if they shouldn't. But it, it is also strongly exacerbated uh, during, uh, during, uh, you know, in, in the neurons of patients with Alzheimer, with ALS. Uh, there is, you know, a clear signature of transposons that lose their repression. They get transcribed. They go around, and they, you know, they trigger an inflammation response. And what we're trying to understand now is. Uh, in Alzheimer's disease is, you know, what transpose, are there specific transposons that tend to be preferential to repress in Alzheimer's neurons? What's the mechanism be behind this derepression, this aberrant derepression? And so are there transcription factors, are there proteins that, you know, dysregulate that? And what the, you know, I told, I told you, you know, this derepression, these transposons is associated with inflammation response, but what's actually, you know, how does it work? What's the actual pathway involved? And you know, what's the real consequence on the physiology of these neurons? And so this is one of main line of research that you know we are pursuing. And then uh, finally, we're gonna keep you know keep on our work on on, on the evolution of gene regulation. Uh, we have collaborators, for example, we collaborate a lot with um, with um, Lucia Carbone at Oregon uh, Health and Science University. Uh, she's interested in, in gibbons, we're interested in, in, in primates in general, and we're now trying to, to, to make comparative genomics uh, between gibbons and other apes to understand. Uh, uh, since gibbons have a very peculiar genome with a lot of rearrangement, and they have transposons that other apes don't have, and then the other apes have transposons that the gibbons don't have, we're trying to really, you know, make all of the pieces together and, and investigate that as well. And, and so this is pretty much all, you know, all we're doing right now. Uh, and we'll see what you know, this is going to bring us. Yeah, at least it sounds very interesting. And we are uh, excited to, to see what's coming out and what can be read then uh, when it's published. 
So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Not really. I mean, uh, like not a complete dead end, but certainly it happened to me many times that we had to take, you know, a slightly different direction. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was always productive and we'd also find a way to go. So I'd say a real dead end, no. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your maybe most important findings or about something or talk about something that we might have missed in this interview? Yeah, I would say something that, you know, has shaped my research in the last few years and I consider one of the most important findings of, of my career. I would say that demonstrating that the CMS transport on SBA have this pervasive, you know, role as, you know, gene regulatory elements. I think that's an important finding. The work has been cited a lot and it's really established the foundation for most of the work in my life. So I would say that. The genome research paper you started from, I, I, would, I would say that's the most important uh, finding to date. So thank you, Marco, for your time and for being oh, on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, you know, I had a great time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.